Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, a few weeks ago, I was a little hungover. If you know me, that is not an unusual situation. <laughs> Starting to get that. that Might vibe. actually be the case today. And when I'm hungover, I like to watch a lot of TV. And one of my favorite movies of my childhood or of my youth was on, I think, Showtime, Lost and Delirious. Have you ever seen this movie? I have not. Okay, so the plot of Lost and Delirious is basically like most good movies in the late 90s. It's kind of alty young women who were all in prep school. And one of the main characters, that's a common, yeah, yeah, (laughs) the craft. um, That's like a common thing. There was was like an obsession with young women in prep school or like Catholic school in the late 90s. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So basically, Piper Paraboo's character in this movie is gay. And she's in love with her roommate. And they're dating, but it's kind of like hush-hush. And one day, they get caught. They get caught by another classmate in the bed with each other. And the Piper Paraboo's, I guess, like, boo, is distraught. And so she calls the whole thing off. She's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And can you guess what Piper Paraboo does after this rejection and heartbreak? I have my suspicion that she kills herself. She does. Uh, She has a complete mental breakdown uh, that involves cutting off her hair, and weirdly getting really into falconry. There's a falcon in this what? movie. <laughs> I didn't I see that coming, did you? I never would have guessed that. <laughs> never. But yeah, I mean, she she has a complete mental breakdown. She threatens um, her, her booze new dude bro boyfriend with a sword and stabs him. And then she jumps off a building and kills herself. And this is a movie that I, I loved growing up because there were so few representations of, you know, queer gay lesbian characters on TV like I could I could count them the ones that were big deals for me I could count on on one hand um, right Lost and Delirious is a big one weirdly this is not a movie that I would think of as like a a a, a gay triumph but cruel intentions because two girls kiss in that movie oh, yeah? mm-hmm. um you know the the amount of media that we got was just not great no it wasn't great And even though this movie was foundational for me and I loved it, looking back as an adult, I was like, this is actually really, really toxic and really, really troubling. So you probably know this this sort of plot device, Bury Your Gaze. Have you heard this? I have heard of it, yeah. And basically it's this idea that gay characters, queer characters, they aren't allowed to just live happy, fulfilled lives where they meet other queer characters who like them and they have a normal, happy, you know, life. Something disastrous always happens. They, they're unrequited love, and so they're heartbroken and they kill themselves. Or they're, they die in some other way. And it's, it's, it's actually really, really troubling. Yeah. I, I immediately thought of um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the Tara, and then Willow goes completely insane and becomes like a super witch and starts, is going to like destroy the planet. Yeah, the subtext is always that queer folks, one, are all just like, a, a hair away from losing our minds, <laughs> or two, we're just we're unstable. Like we, we, you know, it's like it's some something will happen, and you become a super witch, or you yeah. become, you know, jealous, and you know, you've got this revenge plot. Like you're never just a normal person, a normal human. 
Yeah. Or witch, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you are in the weed inverse of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, Autostraddle, a feminist website aimed at lesbian and bisexual women, they track all the lesbian and bisexual women who've died in the history of television. When they first began this list in March of 2016, it had 65 women in it. Now it has 182. Whoa. Oh, this reminds me of another big one. Do you, um, did you hear about that whole thing about the 100, the show on the CW? Yes, yes. Yes. That was a big deal. It was. It caused quite a kerfuffle because there was, I've never seen a show, full disclosure, but I remember this happening. It, it was big enough where it like entered my periphery of I'm very limited on social media, as probably some of you can tell. I'm trying to get better. But um, it, so I think it was Alexa. Was she the one that got killed off? So it's like in a future world where, in theory, there's no, like, it doesn't matter if you're queer or whatever. You're just happy to date someone. It's kind of not the point, you know. Um, And so she had a relationship. The main character had a relationship with Alexa, who was this badass warrior queen. And she kind of just died in a very unceremonious way. And it was after sort of hints from showrunners that, we we did this purposefully, like these characters are there because we wanted to make the statement that she was going to be a big role and that their relationship was kind of important and then she just died. Well, that actually blends two of the most troubling things I found when it comes to queer representation on screen. One, it's they, they get killed off, bury your gaze. And two, it's kind of queer baiting, right? So that's mm-hmm. kind of a form of that, I think, where the show seems to suggest that this is going to be a integral piece of the show this character, like, my queer characters, and then it's like, oops, no, we're, no, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it kind of hooks you in. Yeah, and so queer baiting, in in its purest form, is this idea that um, shows have characters that they hint at being gay, yeah. but then they never deal with it. But I think that's th- the same kind of thing where you you think you are going to get a show that is, you know, deals with this in a yeah. in a substantive way, yeah. and then it just kills them. Yeah, yeah. Um. I've been actually researching a lot of queer baiting lately because it's just come up in several things that I like that I've sort of noticed, like, hmm, interesting. And also, as I've alluded to several times, I, I at one time and occasionally still dip my toes in fan fiction. I was a big in that world. And I remember, like, seeing a lot of things that women love writing slash fiction, male with male characters. And it's always for things where you know that the writers didn't intend that, but the, it is, like, there. You could see it, you know? Um, which is queerbaiting. It is queerbaiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I've been I've been looking into that recently, and um, we don't have enough of those characters anyway. It's not, not a, a good move to tease at, like, oh. Fully agree. <laughs> and, but it does, I will say it does lend, lend itself to a lot of interesting speculation it where does. you're like, I think so-and-so is gay. Here's why. You know, yeah. it's, it's... I certainly have some characters that I I know they'll never do it, but man, I wish they were gay. Who? <sighs> um, I, one of my biggest guilty pleasures is a show called Supernatural, and they're definitely not gay, but man, Dean and Castiel... <laughs> <laughs> it's there. I see all the signs. Stay tuned for Annie's flash, or is it flash fiction? Flash fiction. <laughs> flash fiction. <laughs> my I, my cheeks just got red. 
<laughs> I can't imagine doing it. Stay tuned for Annie's imagining of a oh, world where geez. this is the case. Oh, man. There's so much of that already out there, but maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll add, to the, add to the pail. Oh, I love it. So here's a few stats for you in terms of where we are in media representation. Now, these numbers are from a GLAAD study that they did looking at the 2016-2017 media landscape. They found the number of regular LGBTQ characters counted on scripted, primetime, and cable series increased from 84 to 92, while recurring characters decreased from 58 to 50. This is a total of 142 LGBTQ characters, regular and recurring. GLAAD also counted LGBTQ characters on original series that premiered on Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix. GLAAD found 45 series regulars and 20 recurring LGBTQ characters for a total of 65 characters. This is up from last year's inaugural streaming count of 59 LGBTQ characters, 43 regular, and 16 recurring. And beyond that, one really cool thing to point out is of the 895 series regular characters expected to appear on broadcast scripted primetime programming in the coming year— 43, or 4.8%, were identified as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Now, this is the highest percentage of LGBTQ series regulars GLAAD has ever found. There are an additional 28 recurring LGBTQ characters. So it does seem like things are sort of moving in the right direction. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. Um, Especially in TV, because I I looked at um, some stats for film, and it was not as positive. Well, I think that's a really interesting point, and I think it's why you see so many content creators going toward things like Netflix and Hulu and other forms of media that aren't sort of the big screen. I think that folks feel like they have more control over those stories and their representation in those avenues. Yeah, and it's, I think we're still stuck in this kind of dinosaur model when it comes to movies of like you've got these big studios and they're trying to they're putting in all of this money and they want their the return on the money so they're just sticking to these stories that they know have made the money before and so we're getting movies with characters that are perhaps like not your traditional white male and okay like female white females in the periphery but they're coming from indie film studios, mm-hmm. which are not getting the same amount of money or the same amount of press, and therefore not that many people are seeing them. They're not getting at, made as much. But for something like a streaming service or TV where there's room to experiment, like it's not this one big project. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're um, far ahead of the game when it comes to this than film is. It definitely seems that way. Um, and it's also important to point out that while it's very important to have representation of LGBTQ characters across all spectrums, it's also very important that they're well done. According to Lauren McKinroy, a social work doctoral candidate at the University of Toronto, her research found that having good representations are validating and normalizing for LGBTQ plus youth and contribute to their identity development and overall well-being. However, many youth have to go online to find these affirming representations and often into online fandom communities because of the limitations of LGBTQ plus represented in offline media. So basically, that's kind of what they're saying, right, is that folks who want this diverse array of representation oftentimes have to go online because you're, not, you're just not getting it in other avenues. Right. Um, and we've talked about before so many times now how... It, it does matter to be able to see someone that you can identify with, that you can connect to, that it's like you on the screen or in media, in mainstream media. Exactly. Representation matters. I feel like I've said it a thousand times on the show. <laughs> I should get it tattooed on my forehead at this point, but it's true. It's true. Um, and it, 
In fact, a lot of content creators are using the internet to build the representation they want to see. Exactly. And that brings me to something super, super exciting that I got to do just two weeks ago. I went to Los Angeles to talk to one of those badass, brilliant, amazing content creators, Cameron Esposito. So you might know Cameron as this groundbreaking lesbian content creator. Her show, Take My Wife, which if you haven't seen it, it's amazing and I cannot recommend it enough. You can find it streaming on iTunes, but really that was a project that she kind of created herself. She wanted to see this representation of what it looks like to have queer, non-binary relationships on TV. And so she created it. And I think it's a great model for folks who are want to see those authentic, multidimensional real stories reflected, she got it done. And I think it's a real inspiration for, you know, as a, as a queer content creator. You know, she, she built this thing and people did. I mean, when Take My Wife season two premiered, it was an overnight sensation. It became number one on iTunes right away. And really, I mean, it was a triumph of what you can do to diversify the media landscape. Take My Wife featured an all-female writer's room and really intentionally sought out queer people and people of color to handle all aspects of production. So I'm not just talking the writer's room, the talent. I'm talking costume designers. I'm talking people who are on the set, right? So honestly, if Cameron Esposito can do it and do it wonderfully, what excuse do big studios have for not doing it? None. Exactly. And we're going to have Cameron Esposito herself to explain why that is after this quick break. Cameron, I cannot thank you enough for being here today. You are making my personal dreams come true. And I'm going to say it, probably the dreams of a lot of our listeners come true as well. Wow, I'm, I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to blush. I think I'm going <laughs> to blush real hard. Uh, thank you. That's such a nice thing to say. It's so nice to meet you. You are a ray of sunshine oh. on this very sunshiny Los Angeles day. Yeah, it's hard to not feel sunny and warm in L.A. Oh, my God, that's true, which does actually feel almost debilitating after a while. Yeah. I know that sounds weird. No, it do- it doesn't because being on the East Coast, it's been a little bit, like, gray and dreary, and people are a little bit depressed. Everyone here is so light and airy and sunny and happy. So if you get depressed here, then you're like, well, this is totally on me. Like, there's, <laughs> yes. there's this is not seasonal depression. <laughs> this is, I'm having a hard time. Yeah, you can't blame the weather. Can't yeah, there's the never, weather. like, a day when it's so rainy and you need to stay inside. I mean, this is not, I'm not, I'm not, uh... I love where I live, but as somebody from Chicago, like I do miss some of the, like the help that the weather gives you Yeah. on just like, hey man, this is rough. Like we're all in it together, 35 inches of snow and we have to like come together as a, as a city and a community here. It's just like, no man, you're on your own. It's beautiful. Yeah. Deal get with out, it. Roll get out with there it. and make your dreams come true. Yeah. I love the excuse of having the weather to like stay in and order takeout and watch Netflix. So being from Chicago, let's, let's actually start there. How yeah. did you go from... Chicago girl to the wonderful, I'm going to say media mogul that you are today. International (laughs) celebrity. Comedy A-lister. Yeah, like A A plus, like like a little above the A. Um, How did, well, so one thing that I learned how to do when I was in Chicago was really operate like a small business person. My dad's a small business person and um, my mom always has worked for a lot of my life also. Um, and so I feel like I had like good hustle, which a lot of comics start out with like great art instincts. And I certainly, you know, really love the art part of comedy also. But one thing that growing, coming up in Chicago is like a very DIY scene. 
So I was used to, like, producing my own shows. I created a stand-up class for women because there weren't a lot of women doing stand-up. I was like, well, what if I just trained them so that I had peers? Um, I started an open mic because I needed, like, 300 bucks to make my rent a month. That's a real number. And so I uh, just figured out, like, how to scrounge that from a couple different places. And I I mention all of this because, like, when I got out here to L.A., I— used all of those skills that I had worked on for, like, the 10 years prior that I'd been doing comedy and just kind of approached it that way. That has served me very well. I think the the thing that scared me about L.A., why I never wanted to move out here, was that I always had this impression that it's like you throw all your stuff in a convertible and you're like, go out to L.A. because you're going to make it. Yeah. And like, I'm not going to make it like that. Like, 5'4 and, uh, n- like— normative body type and gay haircut like nobody's plucking me off the beach to be like come star in our as an ingenue in our like and so I I just never thought I'd have a place here but it turns out if you want to come out here and work and you know how to like diversify your business isn't this a serious answer but it's true no well so as someone who I mean Things of, I think of myself as like a creative professional. And something I've learned is you have to sort of abandon this idea of someone's going to pluck you from obscurity and you're going to be the next big thing. What actual creative success looks like and for a lot of folks is it's a little bit of a hustle. So it's, you know, speaking, it's training, it's writing, it's working, it's this, it's that. It's all of these things. It's not sort of overnight success. It's actually a lot of work that is sort of boring and maybe unglamorous a lot of the times, but that's what's you know, leading to success. Absolutely. And I think also that that might have been different a little like 10 years ago when there were a lot less networks on television, things like that. Somebody could have, could be like, they fully made it. I'm Jerry Seinfeld. This is the show with my name on it. I made it. But that being said, Jerry didn't create that show. So like the thing that we, we have in common, that's really exciting about doing business now is like creators are often the the, there's a, a closer relationship between who created the material and who's presenting the material, which is really exciting and yeah. rad for underserved voices because it means nobody else is writing our show. We're on the mic talking out of our own faces. Um, and it does mean that, like, you also don't get paid gobs of money for one job that sets you up for life. Absolutely. To do 87 jobs forever. Yeah. So something that you brought up that I love about your your work is— how integral you have been in sort of carving out those spaces for women, for marginalized voices, for queer people. Um, You tweeted once about your show, Take My Wife, and all of the amazing things your show was able to accomplish in terms of lifting up the voices of others. So it was 22 out of 47 roles played by queer women. You licensed eight songs from queer musicians, worked with queer-friendly costume designers. You had 43% women of color in the writer's room, right? Like, these are statistics that are you know, they shouldn't be earth-shattering, but they are. And so my question is, why has that been important to you to sort of build these spaces on your own that say, like, listen, if they're not going to give us a platform, we will build a platform. We will we will find a way to amplify these voices. I feel like we don't hear this enough, so I'm going to start here. For me, the reason I started doing stand-up was literally to create safety for myself. I could come out to a room of, like, 200 people or 2,000 people. Everybody was no- would know I was gay. I would have charmed them. Maybe they don't want to kill me. That is so serious, but it is so true, right? So, like, that I started stand-up there, that's how I want to work for the rest of my life, which is that if I felt that way, I assume there are probably a a lot of other folks who feel like— when we talk about representation mattering, I think it can that can feel very simplistic. Like, I need to see someone that looks like me. It's also like, 
I need folks creating stuff that have walked the earth having these experiences. Like, it really is, I mean, I fully am a social justice warrior. Like, that thing that you get called on the internet that people hate, that's what I'm trying to do. Like, I want to um, bust down doors for myself to make my own life safer, and I want to try to create a bridge that does that for others so that they can do that on their own behalf also. And I have a wonderful partner, my wife, Rhea. We share this in common. We have this same vision. And so when we went to plan our second season uh, for Take My Wife, we got a bigger budget. And where we applied that money was in time. So we took two extra weeks to ask our production company deliberately to help us find um, like writers of color. We always had had an all-female writer's room. Well, Rhea's non-binary, so Rhea's also in the writer's room. Um, and then we also did the casting ourselves. Wow. So, like, we had we had folks that were doing the emailing and calling agents and stuff, but I just mean, like, if you, sometimes if you want to make change, we didn't have money to hire somebody who's a casting director. We literally, like, thought of the folks that we knew, put the call out in the room, like, who do you know that— actually fits the role that we're writing here. So if we're writing a role for a black woman that's queer, who is, who is that that you know? Um, and we started casting from there. It's really amazing what you can do when you reach out to the, your community and ask them to refer other folks in their community. Definitely. It's like that idea of sort of, you know, casting the bucket where you are or whatever that phrase is, right? Like sometimes the folks that you need are right there and that if you if you go to like a traditional casting person, they might go through the traditional routes, but if that's not what you're trying to build, that doesn't necessarily make sense to do. I mean, and, I mean, number one, that's true. Number two, we did this ourselves, so that leads me to believe other shows can do it that actually do have a person that's doing yeah. casting. So like, if y'all could do it, what's, if we what's can do it excuse? with like no help, then if you have help, you can do this. And that's really why we shared those numbers, because our show, first season was, we, we operated with an almost like lower than most indie film budgets to make six episodes of television. That was doubled for our second season, but for TV, like still really small money. And I say that because if we can do those numbers just with like intention, <laughs> then I think that you can too if you're making your project. Definitely. I want to go back to something that you said that I found really interesting, which is this idea that you started doing comedy to make the world a safer place for folks like yourself. That takes me back to being like in high school or junior high where I always thought, oh, if I can make so-and-so laugh, they won't bully me, they won't tease me. That seems like such a universal experience, I think. I think that's where all comedy comes from. I mean, every humor is a coping mechanism. It like de-escalates a situation. And a lot of times when you, like, I don't know if you've ever listened to WTF with Mark Maron. It's basically like people talking about the moment in their in their grade school life where they got bullied. Like that's like in like every episode. Yeah, comedians seem to yeah. have that in common. Right. I think that the bridge and like the the specificity of somebody who's like from an underrepresented community is that like often that bullying really is like a safety issue. Again, not that like if you're a straight white cis dude, you're not going to get beat up. But I'm talking about more than beat up. I'm talking about like constant name-calling and possible, like, you know, assault or, like, death. I mean, this is so f***ing serious for stand-up, but it really is, right? Like, you're making someone laugh so that they value you. And that's, um, like, why it's powerful to then take that back, to be on stage in front of a bunch of people and, like, choose to be in that role and make them see you. Like, you're going to see my, 
you're going to see my haircut. You're going to see my jacket. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm happy to have this job. Yeah, I think it's a testament to the sort of radical power of comedy, that it is a kind of a, a reclaiming. And I just remember thinking, like, if I can make these kids laugh, then I've won them over. Even if they don't like me, they think I'm annoying, they want, they, their inclination is to pick on me. If I can make them laugh, they're on my side. And it's, it really, I think you nailed it so well that it's, it's kind of this, this radical way of, of reclaiming that. I mean, it's also interesting because when we think about who has historically been able to been like allowed, and I'm putting allowed in quotes to do comedy, and then also let's take that into other spaces. So like who's been allowed to be a politician? Um, the like if you're listening and you want to run for something, <laughs> watch stand up because I think, you know, when I look back to the last election, um, number one, I, I hate the criticism that was flung at Hillary because of her like speaking style. I mean, obviously, we don't even have to fully run through the talking points of why that was infuriating. Um, but I think that if you want to figure out how to, oh, I don't even want to use the word like soften, but I mean, uh, gather in, comics are doing that. Like, that's the point of stand-up sort of, especially women who do comedy um, and non-binary folks and folks who are uh, queer. It's like that that gathering is part of it. Because you're, like, preparing people to, like, I'm going to talk about sex that you don't know whether or not you agree with. Right. So, like, come over here. Like, I'll get you in here and I'll win you over. So, yeah, I'm sure there's folks that are listening that are going to run. Yeah. Watch a lot of stand-up. I really think it could help you in your public speaking. There's an intersection, I think, between running for office and doing stand-up. I think both take a certain level of really intense bravery. I think both take a level of sort of everyone kind of looking at you and scrutinizing you and you being able to roll with it or like perform through it or talk through it or whatever. Um, I think it's, a, it's an, I had never thought of that before. I have a background in activism and politics and I had never thought of that overlap, but I think you're, you're so right that there is something there that if you want to run for office, watch how comedians handle themselves on stage. Yeah, because the diffusing, right? Like when you're a politician or a priest or literally anybody that speaks in front of people, you have to have like, uh, you have to stand behind your opinions 100%, but you also have to be able to diffuse and hear out other folks. And so, like, that skill is really what I love about stand-up. It's, it's a cool part of the job. Would you ever run for office? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think I should probably, like, get a little bit more qualified first. <laughs> hey, I mean, look at our president. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that's going great. Yeah, it was a good choice. Like, it doesn't—watching him in office doesn't lead me to believe we should actually use qualified people. I think since it's going so well, let's just go ahead and run with this. This is our new—this is our new way of doing things. (laughs) Oh, I think think you're on to something. I I want to push that narrative out into the world that running for office—that you can can look to other industries and avenues to sort of— get the, the internal thing that you need to run for office. I also think just as someone who has a podcast, I mean, you probably are used to people being saying things about the way that you present, your voice, probably everything. It's so, it's so difficult to be a marginalized person with a platform sometimes because everyone has an opinion. Oh, my God, girl. I just felt so <laughs> seen and heard. <laughs> yeah, it is tough. It's really tough. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. What do you do to deal with it? Um... I don't read a lot of comments. We did an episode. I have a thing. I'm, I hate the way my voice sounds. Good thing I have a podcast. Um, and so we did an episode around women and voices and speaking. And we talked about it a lot about Hillary Clinton and sort of the idea that you can either be shrill or you can be sort of um, 
almost sort of too chill, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. like there's sort of no winning. And I basically said on the show, if anyone has a comment about the way that I speak, I'm not interested. Like, I don't want to hear it. You know, my voice is my voice. And yeah, and so people still write in, and I'm, I'm sure they still will. But I have to just sort of disengage because, you know, as a professional speaker, my voice is part of it. But I think the most important thing is what I'm saying. And if people have something to say about that, great. But if it's about oh, her voice sounds like this. I'm just, I have to not engage. I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm really sorry that you've had to, like, internalize that that thought over your, over a lifetime. I think it's really hard to not take something that is, like, standardized as, like, this is a bad voice, this is a good, good voice. It's very hard to not take that in. So, like, I feel for you. And I also think, like, you're not set up to succeed. I mean, think about, like, microphones. Microphones are supposed to pick up lower registers. Like, that's totally true. Like, feedback, when something sounds bad to us, it's in a, it's in a high register. Um, when we think about, like, the voices that we've grown up with our entire lives, like even the folks that make it on the radio that um, identify as women usually have voices that are much more in my register. Like your voice as register is is not something that we hear a lot of. Or when that person does have a voice in that register, it's because they're like the sidekick that's going to come in and be like probably sexualized. Yes. Um, or like ditzy or silly or things like that. So like we've, I mean, you've heard that your entire life, like that has been presented to you. Yes. And this is, your, you are helping to undo that damage for other people, hopefully. I hope so. That's an interesting way to put it. What's, what's so embarrassing is that I'm a former smoker, and the reason why I started smoking was because I thought it would make my voice sound lower. I wanted to have a sort of Kathleen Turner, you know, low <laughs> voice, and I thought, oh, if I smoke, that will help. So I started smoking intentionally for that reason. And, kind you, of a dumb and, you, and you no longer smoke. I no longer smoke. I am so happy for you <laughs> that you stepped away from what sounds like self harm in the in the. But like, I mean, who also who hasn't done that? Like, that's very relatable. I mean, when I was in my um, like early teens, I had a really intense eating disorder, and I look back at my life then. That's also when I was like, your hormones are kicking up. I didn't know I was gay, but I felt, like, weird. So something about my body didn't feel right. So then I try to hyper-control my body, like, doing self-harm to, to try to get the result of, like, does this make me normal? Mm. Now do I look like I wear a skirt? <laughs> you know? So it's like, um, God, can we be free of this? I think the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> I think the answer is no. But I think people. I think we're getting to a point where peop- more people are speaking up about these weird feelings that we we really have all grown up with and not really talked about. And I think if someone listening who is, we have a lot of younger listeners, if younger listeners can hear this and think like, whatever it is that you feel weird about, whether it's your sexuality, your hair, your race, your your skin, your voice, whatever thing that makes you feel like you'll never fit in, it's okay. We're all secretly dealing with this and not talking about it. And it's okay. Yeah, you might even like turn it into a career. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I really <laughs> think, you know, not just diffusing like, being queer, but also, like, I was a little kid with crossed eyes. I had crossed eyes, and I wore an eye patch, and, like, I had all sorts of stuff going on. So I had to be really funny because, like, otherwise, who was going to hang out with, like, the little pirate kid? Like, who's hanging out with that kid if she's not, like, very charming? So, I mean, you you can compensate um, and hopefully become more comfortable with yourself, but also, like, maybe use that skill set in a different way yeah. down the line. I love that. Again, reclaiming, you know, taking the power back. Absolutely. Plus, like, it. looking back on it, 
I was kind of cute with a little eye patch. I bet you were. I, was, I didn't want to say anything, but I bet you were. <laughs> it was like kind of a cute look. I yeah. didn't think it was cute. Were you rocking the jean jacket then as well? Oh my god, friend! Like so much, like so much ridiculous hair. Not a jean jacket, but like um, fully a bowl cut. Fully glasses with an eye patch under it. Oh, that's a look. Yeah, it's a real <laughs> look. Um, because I also had like bad, bad vision a different way, and then you know for sure braces, but also like kind of doing fine. Yeah, like kind of accepted by my peers. Um, again, so I think I just had to develop like a chatty personality. And yeah, that that would help me. That's so interesting. Survival mechanisms. Yeah, it's interesting how our survival mechanisms kind of manifest, and then later you realize, oh, I was doing that because I felt weird, and now it's a thing that's part of my identity. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to charge people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to come see me with my eyeballs and stuff. Yes, like, yeah. enjoy this. Drink it all yeah. in. Pay me for it. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. More from Cameron after this quick break. And we're back. Let's get right back to Cameron. So let's talk more about um, your show. So Take My Wife is hilarious. If you haven't seen it, please, please, please watch it. When your network first announced that it wouldn't be picking up a second season, social media was not having it. There was hashtags. There was outcry until eventually you guys got picked up again. And to me, that really says people are thirsting for representations of marginalized folks on screen. And the fact that, you know, we had this season of something so great and so well done and so authentic and so interesting, and then, oh, that's it, you get one taste. People weren't having it. I mean, it does seem like we're we're thirsting for this. Like, people want this. I have to believe that that's true. Well, I mean, and I want to just make a tiny adjustment, which is that, so we had shot the second season, and then it was going to be edited, and then our network folded, which was owned by NBC Universal. Oh. So our network was, like, reabsorbed into NBC Universal, but the way that it was distributed, CISO, like, failed to exist. So that is an extremely unusual position to be put in, where we, like, had this whole thing. We were like, I mean, it's, it's here. Um, and we didn't have a way to put it out. So eventually, um, now it's on iTunes, which is amazing. It was... Number, number one. It was number one on iTunes for like two weeks, which is wild because we found out on a Friday it was going to be on iTunes and it was on, it was available the next Monday. We had no advance, advance warning. We never even put out a press release. We had no marketing budget. We had no PR budget. It was literally just support of viewers and fans. And so that, to me, is what is the amazing success story. Not just that like on a less than indie film budget, we were written up in the New York Times four times in five weeks and not, no, five times in four weeks. Not just that we, like, made it into Vanity Fair. All this awesome stuff that that really was, like, oh, people are taking this seriously as a show. But then also that, like, fans support. I mean, you know, this is a business about money. This is a business about money. And things that haven't been proved out, it's really hard to take a risk on. That's why, blank, that's why like, Black Panther matters. That's why Girls Trips matters. That's why, hopefully, the success of Love, Simon, like, that being a movie that was— the first LGBT movie that was given, like, a full release, like, a full major studio release, wild. And that's why, like, folks didn't even have to—our show was cheap. <laughs> like, you want to make your money back? Make a cheap show with me. <laughs> I swear to you, there's a, there's a fan base out there. We just saw it. I mean, clearly there is. Clearly there is. Something else I love about your show is that it really, I feel like it shows something that we don't see that often, which is this authentic representation of queer folks in love. And 
I'm just curious, like, what's it like to be married to someone that is also your, like, creative partner? Oh, my God, really hard, but good, but really, really good. Rhea is, well, I mean, they're the best person I know, and so funny. Thank God we think each other are funny, because otherwise it would not work. (laughs) Um, And I think the other thing is, like, the thing you're talking about, the honest representation of queer folks. I mean, we're we're the only show ever co-created by an out-married couple. Obviously, marriage equality, like, basically happened yesterday, so that's not too shocking. But um, when we see queer folks, like, maybe one of the people on screen will be actually queer that's portraying a queer character. Maybe. Rarely is it two folks, and rarely is it two people that have an existing relationship. Like, that's not a thing. I think it really does matter First of all, I support actors who are not, who are outside the community who want to play queer roles. Like, cool. Thank you. Welcome. I will go see Call Me By Your Name. But I I think that if we want to get to a place where, like, we really know what our community is, what we really look like, what it really looks like when we make out with each other, I think we have to put some more queer folks in queer roles. Definitely. That's so funny. This is kind of a weird TMI story, but I remember when I was quite young, and I would watch women on screen having sex with each other. And I would always say, like, there was there was different moves that I would see, and I would say, I don't feel like this is actually how we do it. This is, I, didn't, I had never been with a woman at that point, but I remember thinking, like, this looks wrong. I don't think this is how it's done. Come to find out, all those scenes were not written by queer women, right? And so we don't even, like, we don't even see the mechanics of it the way that they actually play out yep. oftentimes, you know? It's like, it's like, oh, this is a, a scene shot by men for men. And it really was very confusing for me. I'm sure plenty of other folks out there had that same experience. But I think it just goes to show how many ridiculous tropes that we see around queer folks on screen, right? When they're not written by the queer community, when they're not written, not portrayed by queer actors. Like, you have those ridiculous tropes like bury your gaze, where the only time you see a queer woman on TV is she's, you know— she dies at the end, or she's, you know, bi, but just bi enough, you know, like, you don't see these real authentic representations, and it's just very confusing. Yeah, it's also always kind of, um, it seems to be more often than in the real world conflated with, like, feelings of sadness. So, like, I think, yes, there are coming out stories, and there are moments where, like, somebody who's newly out has conflict is conflicted about kissing someone, but that's not the only time we kiss each other. Sometimes later, we don't even smash each other against the wall. <laughs> we just have like normal kissing. Um, we're not even sad. And then like that thing. Um, I, there's also a thing that I see all the time. I like have coined the term uh, for it. It's called skydiving. TM. That's Cameron Esposito's word. <laughs> yeah, don't it's, steal that. Skydiving is when two uh, people with vaginas are on screen together and they're both like seeming to ha- to be like fulfilling each other in a sexual way, but also all of their hands are visible. Right, so like what are they doing? What is happening <laughs> down yes, there? What are they doing? Those are the exact <laughs> scenes where I would say... What like is that how you do it? What like okay. what is happening that this is so pleasurable for both of you? Yeah, so that's skydiving. Um and then the other thing that I would say is like like you said the representation of like by folks as like being chased or like there, that there's not it just is like really sad for by folks the the representation. I think if you want to if you want to um see like a great version of two actors on having awesome on-screen chemistry. I really like the movie Bound, 
um, which doesn't feature two actors who are, well, I will say this. I don't know about one of them, um, but I, but it's not like queer actors. It's um, it's the Wachowski's first movie, Wachowski's first movie, and it's how they got the money to make The Matrix. Because oh. Bounty is so good that folks were like, well, yeah, you should definitely make more movies. Um, but they hired a sex choreographer. They hired like somebody who's in the community to choreograph their sex scenes and they look awesome right. they look really good and like tender and also like hot yeah like it doesn't have to be like not hot yeah, but it just looks real right. yeah it looks like right it looks correct everything that's happening you're like no this is like really cool and sexy and this is also believable and so it has been done like just watch that if you're gonna put it in your movie just watch that yeah and that's it's so true like just get someone who knows what they're talking about to help you with your scene don't just choreograph what you think happens because that's very confusing for like 14 year old girls who are watching TV and they're like what's happening absolutely. here absolutely and also if there's going to be like dudes that are going to be making out with each other can you um maybe not pan to a tree constantly oh my god always always <laughs> like you get a little bit of the action and then it like pans to like the stars or something it's, it's really it's that makes me so worried for like young dudes who Man, like, so, so young, so, like, for young women, it's, like, women are always having sex on camera, but it's, like, bad, unsatisfying sex. And then for dudes, it's, like, you don't get to have sex You on don't camera. even show it. It's implied. Yeah, like, because this is too gross for this audience. I was just on a plane recently, and I noticed um, that, like, all the LGBT movies had a content warning, and then, like— I watched, I mean, this is this is Cameron Esposito on a plane, like, trying to relax or whatever. <laughs> I, I saw one LGBT movie had a had a content warning, and I was like, huh, I wonder. So then I looked at all of them. There were, like, four on this movie, or on, that, on this plane, and I was like, they all had, like, this very intense warning. And then I, I looked at the notebook because I was like, I know there's nudity in this yeah, movie. There, it's, it's I a, it's know a there's nudity. Movie. I know there's, like, a sex scene. No content warning at all. Interesting. So, like, that's still where we are. Yeah. When so people that, talk about forward movement, like, do we even need Love, Simon? It's like, yeah, on a plane, there has to be a content warning before two women kiss. It's so ridiculous. Sometimes, sometimes I want to—I find myself feeling really happy at how far we've come sometimes. And then moments like that, I think, wow, we really haven't come that far. It's like a weird two steps forward, one steps back kind of thing. I mean, I think part of that is, it's kind of, it's the whole thing that we're talking about. I think that we focused so much on creating allyship outside of the community, which by the way, had to happen. Like, of course, that's how we got here. But now I feel like I want to hear from us. Like, I want to hear what our stories are, our failings. I want to hear about more than marriage. I want to hear about more than bathrooms. I want to hear about those things. But I want to hear about like, hey, what's it like to go to the doctor? Can you make it through the scanner at the TSA line? Because like, if you're not presenting, like they don't know whether to pick pink or blue and there's only two options and like now you're being padded down. You know, like I want to hear all of these things that we go through on a daily basis because I feel like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe people won't care. Maybe. I feel like I always do better with more knowledge about other communities. Like, I always have more affection and more solidarity the more information I have. Totally. When, I mean, when is having less information ever served anybody better? When the president was running for office. Yes, true. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> that is very, very real. He was literally real. like, honestly, do you have information? Throw it in the trash. Yeah, I don't even I need don't the information. I don't want to look at any of Less information. Less information. Can you wipe my brain? Yeah, okay, thank like you. the men in black flashy <laughs> thing. Exactly. Like, I don't want to learn anything else, please. And I, and I started knowing nothing. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's so true, though. Um, so who who are who out there do you feel like is making the content that you want to see? That kind of content that you just described. Are there folks mm. that should be on our radar? 
I guess one person I would recommend that I think is just like really um, interesting um, is Brittany Nichols, who wrote on second season of Take My Wife, who's also in um, two episodes in that season. And then also, like, on a, on a freaking dime, um, made this indie film called Suicide Kale that is, like, mostly women of color, really small cast, and all in one location. And I think, especially if you're, like, a creative person out there, I think you can get it, you can get it, like, a lot of places. Suicide Kale, K-A-L-E. Um, but if you're somebody who's just, like, how can I, I just recently had Brittany on my podcast too, which is called Query. And Brittany like went through literally like a little bit of how she funded it. But it's like, it's like not a ton of dollars and a lot of called in favors and a lot of writing to something like it's one location. So wow. she was able to do it. Anyway, you should just watch that movie and, and like let your wheels spin about what you can do if you are entering this field like what can i do that's in this realm because like that's why we hired her we saw that movie that's why we hired her and then Brittany continues to have jobs so i love it i mean that's also such an important bit about it where you watch you consume media like this and instead of just watching it and saying oh that was great make have like marinate on it and say like how can how do i fit into this you know can I watch more movies by queer folks of color? Can I fund them? Can I recommend them? Like, wh- like what is my—can I make them, right? Like, what is my role in this? I yeah. love that. I mean, I think it's really interesting to to look um, also at how folks have—like, we were talking about earlier in this in the, this conversation, like, how folks have jump-started their own careers. There's also a really great show that you can watch just on YouTube for free that's called Her Story. Oh, yeah. That's, like, created by Jen Richards and Laura Zak, and, um, and it's— it's, like, incredible what they were able to pull off. And then, essentially, that's their calling card. Now, I'm not saying that everybody can do this. One cannot—not everybody wants to get into television, and also not everybody can, like, bring their friends together. And, I mean, there's barriers to entry for every type of person. But but, um, what I like about this is looking at how the diversity of the Internet, like, the the Internet just creating different pathways— allows us to see these voices that, like, aren't on HBO yet, yeah. but probably will be. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, think about it. Like, Issa Rae, you know, powerhouse at HBO, got her start on YouTube, right? Making a web series. Yes, yes. And so maybe maybe looking also at, I mean, because I've been in the position of hiring, I will just say that it is really easy to hire somebody whose work you can see. And so whatever field that you're in, if there's anything that you can make, supports you getting hired if you're somebody who's from like a an underserved community or an underrepresented it does matter to try to put that little extra effort in that that and by the way this is actually a lot of effort but to like get yourself noticed definitely so tell me about query it's my, yeah. it's one of my favorite podcasts oh, cool. if people aren't listening to it you're missing out um tell us about it oh yeah well so after the election i don't know how you felt i was sad <laughs> i have spent the majority of my career speaking to folks outside of the queer community. And I felt like it was working. You know, I felt like um, I had a career. I had a lot of support from my peers. I felt like I was changing minds, all this stuff. And then that election happened and I was like, oh, was I? You know, so I... I think what it made me reevaluate was, like, who do I need to be with? Do I need to be 
with the folks that needs that need their minds changed about me, or do I need to like be with the folks who are really f-ing scared right now? And um, that's really what Query came from was like wanting to create something that everybody is invited to. It's free. There's no barrier to entry. You can listen if you have. Well, I guess you have to have a phone or a computer. Um, but it really is for the queer community specifically. Because, like I said, I want to hear our stories. I want to hear the the diversity of our stories. I want to hear about more than coming out. I want to hear about, like, if we're going to talk about coming out, I don't necessarily want to spend the whole time on your parents. I want to talk about you. Like, how did you feel coming out? Because we don't don't even get to be the stars of our own stories, like, in our friend groups sometimes, in our families, in our churches. Like, we're not the stars of our own stories in life. No wonder we're not the stars of our own stories on TV. Yeah, and that's true because when you think about the sort of typical coming out story, when you see it on TV, it's about the parents and sort of how they dealt with it, grappled with it. And that's certainly part of the story. But yeah, you don't get the story that's how did you feel? How did take me through what you were going through? You really don't get that that often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I think faith is a really good example of this. Like we spend a lot of time on like, well, this church just disagrees, you know, and we accept that as if churches aren't made of human beings who are looking at another, looking another person in the face and saying, like, you are going to hell, or you disgust me, or you're not welcome here. And, you know, for me, I grew up really Catholic, and when I came out, I really hated myself because I didn't think I'd have a future. I thought I was, like, going, going to literal hell, which was an actual place is what I thought. And I think that I don't hear that story that much. I don't hear the story about the person who's, like, like, this isn't some, this isn't, actual god that is talking to me right now this is a priest or this right. is a or this is a teacher at my school or whatever this is a human um who read a book that was written by somebody else in a different language 2000 years ago and loosely translated multiple times right <laughs> <laughs> so i feel like let's hear about us let's hear about what we've survived i mean young folk like like younger than us queer folks i feel like we don't even it's like the AIDS crisis, that w- that's a generation ago. It's not, that's not long ago. Right. Do young folks even, like, know about that? I mean, I, it's interesting because the way that it's dealt with now, it makes it seem like it's so far away. Like, oh, right. this was the dark ages, and it actually wasn't that long ago. No, those folks are, like, our parents' age. Right. And, yeah, it, it makes you wonder about—I I often wonder about young queer folks, younger than us— what their media landscape looks like in terms of what's out there. You know, what are they consuming? What messages are they internalizing about themselves and how they fit into the world? I think about that quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it is, obviously, it's like, it seems a little bit, so the better, I think the better stuff is that it seems like a little less performative. I mean, the stuff that, like, I grew up with was was um, the cast of Cruel Intentions, like, kissing on the MTV Movie Awards. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that was, for me, like, representation. <laughs> was, like, a moderately exploitative, but very fun yeah. kiss, you know? Um, and then, like, now it seems like it's not just that. It's not just one kiss a year. Sometimes we get, like, as many as 27. A you handful. Know? Yeah. <laughs> um, we, there are some non-binary folks on TV. There are some folks who are, like, both people of color and queer, like, as if those things could intersect. Yeah, you can, you can be one or the other. You can't be both. <laughs> can't. Doesn't, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Oh, my God. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So it does seem like there, there's, there's more, um, but I have no idea. 
Do you talk to like a lot of young queer folks? I, I talked to some of them. Um, in my previous life, I worked for Planned Parenthood, and I my, my job involved talking specifically to young folks, like students. And that was great work, and I was so blessed to do it. But honestly, like the young folks that I talked to were on like a different level. They were sort of like what you were talking about. They were not like, oh, the shows we get suck. They were, I'm making a show in my dorm room, <laughs> and I'm going to rule the world. They were on a different level totally. than I was oh, completely. That's so rad. <laughs> I know, I know. I've been, I've been to a, something that I do sometimes is perform at colleges, and that is always, like, challenging because they're, because you're right, there's, like, there's a, like an excitement and a dissemination of ideas in younger folks that I think is way faster than what, what I grew up with. Like, I was trying to learn all of it through books or a human being. And so then these folks have had access to the internet their entire lives, and that's a lot more information. Sometimes I'm getting, like, snapping when I'm at shows because folks are just, like, on my vibe and slash. I'm like, no, I'm teaching you this. <laughs> This is the job of a stand-up comic. Wait, have you had this idea before? <laughs> I love it. Well, I think when you it's look pretty at cool. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. And I think, like, when you translate that to, like, politics and activism, it is not surprising to me that the people who are kind of really at the forefront of a lot of our big, exciting political momentums right now are young folks. Because, let's be real, like, a teenager with Twitter is, a, is powerful, right? A teenager with a laptop is powerful. And it's not surprising to me that they're leading movements and leading marches and impacting policy and having an impact because, you know, we've, we've spent so long saying, oh, these young kids, they're not doing anything. They're eating Tide Pods. Forget them, forget them. And it's like, no, a teenager on Twitter, if a bunch of teenagers wanted to drag one particular person on Twitter, I would be worried for that person, right? Like, you can't, you, the teens are powerful, Right. The the thing that I am excited about re R E, uh this the youth that's happening the youth like movement that's happening right now, especially around guns. Like this is so if you're a young person, maybe, and this is not true for everybody, you don't yet have to worry about like getting fired from your job because your boss sees your political views on the internet. Um like taking care of kids. You don't maybe yet have to worry about your own financial stability. So like you're maybe not working a job. 70 or 80 hours a week. Not that school isn't taxing, and also not that this is true for every teenager. But there is, like, something to the, like, a little bit more freedom away from capitalism, which eventually, you know, capitalism is the reason that we're having a problem with guns, is because folks can't, like, turn down the moolah behind the guns. Like, so if we're, if you are, if you enter the workforce and you are then part of the capitalist system, it is a lot harder to, like, have these finite stances. It is just, it's harder. It's not harder for me. I'm a stand-up comic. I get to go on the road or on the internet and say whatever I want, but it might be harder for any of your listeners who have, like, some day job and three kids and they, like, can't lose that job because they need to take care of those kids. Like, I get it. You know, not everybody has a platform um, and the opportunity to have a platform. This is very exciting because I feel like just a couple years ago, we were looking at folks in the same position, like young people who had not yet entered the work workforce, that were saying things like, well, do we even still need feminism? Because, like, women have jobs now. And to me, that's like, just wait. Just wait till you enter the workforce. I promise to you, I promise you we still need feminism. But now it feels like there's been this really cool shift. It is um, one of the positive effects of this silliness that's happening right now. Um, in our political culture is that, like, young people are taking advantage of this time. Like, if you have the flexibility, please do that. Th that is awesome. 
I'm I'm like in love with you for doing that. Yeah, and it's it's I mean, I find myself inspired by the youth today where it's so easy to be cynical and think, "Oh, we'll never make change and what's the point?" Like it's I mean, particularly with Trump in the White House, like it's very easy to disengage and check out and to see these young people not checking out, checking all the way fucking in, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not leaning out, I'm leaning in, you know? It's 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 really powerful and inspiring. I know, it's like very the last Jedi, right? So there was like a dark force emerging in the world and so then like a light force had to emerge also, which is the youth like coming together to um to be Rey, the hero of the last yeah, Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I've actually not seen that Star Wars, okay, well, but I get the reference. Um, I mean, you know, it's a Star Wars <laughs> reference. <laughs> Basically, it's what is interesting about it is that there's like a new, like there's an awakened evil. And and so um, the Jedi Knights have been like dormant because there wasn't such a strong evil. So that's that to me is kind of what's going on here. Yeah. And you don't want to you don't want to go into an election that way like, well, if 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 my candidate loses, then at least there'll be like an awakened good in the world. Like, I don't think that's a good way to operate because there will also be a ton of damage mm-hmm. caused a by this presidency. A lot of folks made that point like, oh, well, if Trump wins, at least there will be a, a a revolution and there'll be blood running in the streets and blah blah blah. And I thought that's great for you, but think about who would actually be hurt by that. Absolutely. I find, I think that point is really really off base to to be like almost rah-rahing it and excited about it. Also, people would say that about art. I don't know if you were seeing that at all. Like, well, there's going to be really great art made because during times of stress, like really great art is made. This is not worth it. This is never worth it. This great art is never worth like somebody's life. Of course. Um, It's never worth like deportation. It's never worth health insurance going away. Of course it's not. Um, But what is, does seem to be true is that there is like this force of good in the world that, um, if we could, like, let's just keep going regardless of who's in the White House. Let's yeah. have that happen. Let's have that happen. Won't that be great? Yeah, and it doesn't have to there's be. There's a better person in the White House, yeah. and then there's, like, a strong good on top of good. Like, oh, my God, what if that happens? Yeah, good on good. <laughs> it could only be good. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yes. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for being here today. Where can folks find out more about all the awesome stuff that you're up to? Yeah, so CameronEsposito.com is where you can find tour dates, things like that, because I tour around doing stand-up. You can listen to my podcast, Query, Q-U-E-E-R-Y, or you can listen to my podcast, Put Your Hands Together. That's a stand-up podcast. Or you can watch my show, Take My Wife. That's on iTunes. That's so many things. So many things. Look at all these things. You're up to so many things. Yes. This was a great conversation. Thank Thank you so so much much. for having me. This is the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Red. Well, I'm such a big fan of Cameron. As you could probably tell in that interview, I was very much fangirling. And not just because I think she's so cool. I also am just very inspired by how she has taken it upon herself to create the kind of content that she wants to see in the world. And the world is a better place when we have representation like that. And I know that because of the work that she's done, somebody doesn't have to settle for a movie like Lost and Delirious where they die or, you know, watch an entire hour-and-a-half-long movie for one girl-on-girl kiss because you want to you see yourself that badly. Because of work like this, you know, folks can see themselves in ways that are more authentic. My heart is warm at the thought of more content like this and that maybe, yes, someone listening to this um, will go out, be inspired, create their own. We would love that. So if you're doing that or you want to do that, we want to hear all about it. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And where can folks send those emails, Annie? You can send them to MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Mom